Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we just, as we enter your word and, and we, we begin to read from the pages of Scripture, I pray that our hearts are right before you. We've begun with worship, God, and, and putting you in your rightful place in our hearts, praising you, giving thanks to you. And now, God, I pray that you've prepared us for this message. Prepare us for your word. Prepare the person who's sitting here today, and maybe there's a distraction Maybe they've had a hard week. Maybe there's all sorts of things going on in their life. But God, they're here today, and your word is ready for them, and your spirit, and your son to save them if they need it. So I pray, God, you prepare for whatever you have for us. Prepare those hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome. Um, Glad you're here visiting with us or worshiping with us today. If you're a guest visiting with us, then uh, I hope to meet you after the service. Love for you to come forward after the service and, and just uh, introduce yourself to me. That'd be great. My name is Obi, and I'm the pastor here. And go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We are finishing the book of 1 John today. Uh, for those of you who have never been through a book of the Bible study today, uh, ever, then uh, you may just uh, be like, Woo, finally we're done with 1 John Who's laughing? I, that's not. <laughs> but uh, I'm actually starting off with a shorter book of the Bible so that I, you get used to it. I'm going to do a few short books of the Bible and then eventually we'll take on something like Romans or 1 Corinthians and then we'll see who all the true Christians are by that time. So 1 John chapter 5, we're going to go through verses 18 through 21 today, finishing this book of the Bible. Next week we're going to start a message series on discipleship and really our discipleship process for our church, what I'm hoping to implement here, but also just providing you, you tools to help disciple your own life and people in your life. Um, but then just to think about where you are in your own discipleship walk. What next step does God maybe have for you? So we're going to do that for six weeks, and then we're going to start the book of James, a very good and practical book of the Bible. Today I've given you a little um, tool, I guess. It's in your bulletin, and it's just an outline of 1 John. There's nothing special about this outline. You could read a dozen commentaries, and you'd get numerous different outlines yourself. This is just one that I've worked on over years, and so um, hopefully it's helpful to you. It's just kind of a tool that you can see some of the themes that um, evidence for salvation or distinctions of Christians. Chapter 4, distinctions of Christians continued. You can see themes throughout uh, like love, obedience, things like that, that really help maybe put the big picture of 1 John into your mind. And so as we go through 1 John and we conclude this, um, I hope that that big picture is kind of in your mind today and this big picture of that you either have the Son or you don't. You either have Jesus or you don't. And if you have Jesus, then what God would want you to know is that you can rest assured in Him. That if you have Jesus, then you have eternal life. And it's not about you, it's about Him. Well, sometimes as I think of questions that we might have as we go through the Word, um, I, I'm reminded of, so I've been to 
different colleges through my uh, years of, of seminary, etc. And I remember one class specifically. Now, you may remember your best teachers, but you also remember sometimes your worst classes. If you just had a class that it was just, it was just terrible. And I had this one class who later on the professor said, we tried to make it difficult so you would know what a, a difficult learning experience was like. I don't know if he was just covering his tracks or, or what he was doing, but, but it was just awful. The whole time, I just never knew where I stood in a class. And by this time, I'd been to lots of college. I was reasonably good at, at following instructions, writing the paper they wanted me to write, understanding the material. And yet, at this class, I just never knew where I stood. I would turn in a paper, and I would just say, I hope I'm not about to flunk out because I don't know if I'm meeting their criteria. I don't know if I'm doing what they want me to do. And so that class was just awful. Not knowing answers to some of the most key questions is an awful place to be. A key question like when you're in a class, you want to know, what do I need to do to, what do I need to learn? What do I need to do to get through this class? And also, what knowledge are you wanting me to gain from this class so that I can go forward in life having learned these tools, learned these lessons? And if you don't get that, then it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. God hasn't left us in that position. As we've gone through First John, I really do pray that there's been some Christians in here that you have felt more confident in your faith, and you've known that just by stumbling into a sin, you didn't lose your salvation. That it's always been about Him. It's always been in His hands. And if you really have Jesus, then you really have eternal life. I hope you've seen that. I hope you've seen some expectations as well, though. The expectation to love, the expectation to obey, because we could go too far the other way and say, well, if my salvation is in God's hands, then I should just be able to do whatever I want, treat people however they want, because, because I'm saved by Him. And of course, there's numerous lessons in Scripture against that, not just in First John, but First John points out the expectation of love, the expectation of obedience. And so we get to the end of this book, and I haven't highlighted this word too much a few times, but you're going to see four times the word know, K-N-O-W. You're going to see it four times at least in this, this little passage just of these few verses. And it's been all throughout this book of the Bible. John is very concerned with what people know. He, for one reason, he's facing Gnostics, people who believe they had a special knowledge. And specifically, these Gnostics, this version of Gnosticism, didn't believe Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. And so he's fighting against this, so it's no surprise that he uses this word no multiple times. One of the words, gnosko, he, use it, he uses it 25 times. And this is a very general knowledge. It's a variety of application to be aware, to feel, to know, to perceive. And for the Jewish person, when you said you know something, it wasn't just, oh, I have this intellectual knowledge. It was, no, I know it to my being. That's why when we say, do you know God? It doesn't mean, do I have an intellectual knowledge? It means, do I have this relationship of my whole being with God? So he uses that 25 times. He uses another one, Oida. 15 times. And this one can be pretty synonymous with gnosko. However, it can also come with the connotation that I know because I have seen or observed. So you have these 40 times this word know is in here. And as he said this word know, what you want to know is that he's answered some difficult questions. 
That's really what knowledge does, is it helps answer these questions, these things that I could be very uncomfortable if I'm sitting there not knowing my salvation. Those types of questions. So in the study, we have asked some difficult questions, and we're going to conclude today with three difficult questions and answers to those questions. The first one is this. What do we do about sin in the life of a Christian? What do we do about sin in the life of a Christian? The second question is this. What do we do about the changing culture? That the culture around us is just going quite obviously opposite of God. What do we do about that? The third one is, what can give me confidence in my own salvation? So let's begin in 1 John chapter 5. Look with me, please, at verse 18. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. It says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I, uh, I'm asking again this first question, what do, we, what do we do about sin in the life of a Christian? As a reminder of this time, uh, if you follow me on social media, I almost only post about church. I try not to engage in too many other things. Um, if you're one of those social media debaters that you just feel like <laughs> that's a good response if you feel like if you feel like you're just going to go out there and you're just going to convince the whole world of of what you believe and you're going to do it through the comment section of of facebook or something like that then you've probably gotten in a few fights i dare say i i just find on social media um, people entirely unyielding that they're just entirely fixed in their position and sometimes just looking for a fight. And it seems sometimes that people are just geared toward getting angry at each other. I, I had a time where I had a student when I was a youth pastor, they tagged me in this very controversial post and they couldn't answer the question. And so they're like, Obi, go get them. Like, I'm tagging my pastor, fight for me. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'll have a private conversation with anyone who wants to, but I'm not just going to enter into a fight. Well, there were two times that I, I broke my own rule. You know, sometimes someone poses something, and it's just like, I have a certain amount of willpower, but sometimes all of us, we meet our breaking point. Well, I was in this, this is part of the reason, it was in a church leaders group on Facebook. And so I'm in this church leaders group, and there are two different times where it was just shocking the responses. Because when you're in a church leaders group, maybe naively, you just kind of think, oh, everyone believes at least somewhat similar to what I believe. And in, in some instances, maybe that's true. But the bigger the group and the more, uh, wide, more wide it reaches out into different denominations and, and things, the more opinions you're going to have. And, and so I was on this platform, and, and it was when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And you can imagine the debates that happened right there on a Christian leader website or group. And so I entered into that fray a little bit. I wasn't going to, but I saw one person that they were trying to uh, argue for the side of life, and a surprising number of people just turned on them. And I said, man, I can't let that brother stand alone. And so I did that and tried to be gracious. And, um, and then on the same platform, there's another time where we're just, I, I don't know, sometimes people, sometimes people will just post something because I think they're... I don't know if they've never been on social media before, but they post something like, hey, just not looking for a fight, but I just want to see everyone's opinion. Does that ever work? You say I'm not looking for a fight. Oh, everyone will be cordial then. So they post this thing about uh, young adults living together. 
and living together before marriage, uh, opposite genders living together. And again, I was just shocked by some of the, the carelessness that people approach a potential lifestyle of sin. Now, as I say this, my job here is not to just make you feel like an awful person if you're living with someone and you're not married. Uh, but I do want to point you to the biblical truth that God calls you to not just avoid sexual immorality, but he, it uses the word flee, run away from sexual immorality. And you are putting yourself in a precarious situation if that's what you're doing, living together before marriage. And so, again, I wasn't going to enter the fray, but I saw someone who had just presented the case for holiness and caution. I just saw them getting ganged up on. And so I said, man, it's a a group that is supposed to be ministry leaders. And so, again, I kind of entered the fray, and I I try to always be gracious. And immediately I started getting (laughs) attacked as well. And there was one individual that was a little more vicious in their attack. And when they they start to go at a person instead of dealing with the arguments. And so then I just, I kind of tried to get them to the basic principle that holiness is worth a little difficulty. Holiness is worth a little inconvenience. Holiness is worth it that I may have to go above and beyond. And, and what I did is uh, they, they kind of accused me of saying, well, you just wouldn't help someone. What if they're in a situation where financially they can't make it? They didn't know I had a background of being on church benevolence teams. I've seen, and not my own generosity, but I've seen the generosity of churches. I've seen uh, three churches that I've been on staff now. I've seen how generous churches are. And that if there is someone who is in sin and it's just finances keeping them away from living a holy life, I have every confidence that most churches that that really are Bible-believing churches, they will help that individual. And so I said, well, what if there's someone uh, that they can't afford it I would try to work something out. First, I'd try to find a young adult of the same gender that they could maybe be roommates with. Or I'd find someone, if it's a young lady, I'd find a a lady who's a senior adult that maybe they could use someone to live with them and and, and have someone there to help out. What I'm saying is that holiness is worth a little inconvenience. And I got a little pushback, and I just repeated it. Holiness is worth a little inconvenience. And that was something that uh, and eventually they kind of conceded that point and recognized that, yeah, if someone's willing to work, and I said, yeah, that's what the church is supposed to do. So what do we do about sin in the life of a Christian? This question could, could cause all sorts of things. We're going to talk about eternal security in a moment, but, uh, but it could do that, right? If, if I'm just living an unrepentant life of sin, then it could really cause doubt about my salvation, Because look what this says in verse 18. We know, there's that word, the knowledge that we have. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now this is confusing. Is it confusing to you? Because if you say, I'm a Christian, I've been born of God. In fact, look at verse 16 really quick. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. Now wait a minute. It's a fellow believer who sins, and yet two verses later it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. I could go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, and verse 10 also, and they say, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. So Christians sin, 
That's the difficulty is when I read a, a verse like this and I take it out of context, I just think, well, if I even sin once, then I've lost my salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's again arguing against people who can say, I, I just, I, I know God, but I'm going to live however I want. What I want to point out here is a position and a condition. The position is this. We know that everyone who has been born of God. This is a positional statement. This is, if you are a Christian, this is what he's saying about your identity, that you are in him. Like in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where it says we are his little children, but it doesn't yet look like, we don't yet look like what we will be. It's a positional statement that once I surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then I am adopted by Him. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit. My position in Him is sure. And now here's what he's arguing about, is if that position has no bearing on your condition, then you might not be in that position. Did that make sense to you? <laughs> Thank you. We know that everyone who has been born of God, that is your position, does not sin. That's your condition. What I'm saying is being born of God ought to shape our condition. It ought to shape the way we walk. It ought to change the way we do things, the way we live life. And I may still recognize that, yeah, there may be a, a financial situation where it's hard and it'd be easier and more convenient to live with someone before I'm married to them. But my position should alter my condition. My position in Christ should alter my earthly condition. It ought to alter the way that I live. That doesn't mean it's going to change every single desire that I have. I would have a desire for convenience still. Even in Christ, I have a desire for convenience. I have a desire for pleasure. I have a desire for all sorts of things unholy. But what I ought to do is not let my condition lead me. I ought to let my position lead me. That's what he's saying. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. He means sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your authority. That's the question because the reality is believers sin, but the question is who has authority over you? Flesh or God? Who has authority over you? I'm not saying do you ever mess up. We know in this very book, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, verse 10, we see it right here in verse 16. You're going to mess up. You're going to sin some. But who has authority over you? Your flesh or God? You see, if I get on a social media platform and I argue that the convenience is more important than the Word of God then I'm failing to live up to his authority. I'm, I'm failing to recognize his authority. If I argue that, that, well, I just have this temptation, this desire in me, and that is going to take preeminence in my life over the king of the universe, then what I'm doing is saying, my flesh has authority over me, God does not. And that's what he's arguing about. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, that's a little confusing as well. The one who is born of God keeps him, because it could be talking about us keeping ourselves. that he's essentially restating this, that if you're born of God, you won't sin. You'll keep yourself from sin. The evil one won't touch you. Probably a better interpretation is the one who is born of God is talking about Christ, him keeping you. We know that he keeps us 
for eternal security, but also providing a way out of sin. 1 Corinthians 10, it's in your notes or on the screen, it says this, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. We have kind of a, a misconception about sin in modern life where we feel like that if I have a desire, then I can't help it. If I have something that, that I want, then I, I just kind of have to go get it. If you have lust problem, then maybe pornography is your way out. If you have a greed problem, then maybe theft or ignoring your family is the way out. And we feel like just because I have a desire that I have to do it. What he is saying is our position ought to alter our condition. Your position in Christ ought to change the way you live. So for this first point in your notes, we know that Christians practice holiness. When we say what do we do about sin in the life of a Christian, what I believe God word, God's word says to you is practice holiness. Practice it. You say, yeah, but I'm, I'm looking for like a cheat code or a cheat sheet. I, I'm looking for a way to make it easier for me. He says, practice holiness. Let your position in Christ alter your condition in this world. So then he goes on to verse 19. Look at that with me, please. Verse 19 says this. We know, so there's the second statement of what we know. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Now, as I've gone through this study, I've, I've talked a little bit about same-sex attraction, um, gender dysphoria, things like that, because I really want us to face this idea of the culture head-on. And I believe Scripture is just as relevant today as when it was written, is just as life-giving, life-transforming. It's not the first age of humanity that they've had sin. They used to have people battle to death in the Colosseum with lions around them and tigers around them. Right? Depravity is not new. So what do we do about the changing culture? I have uh, several family members that struggle with same-sex attraction and um, not immediate, extended family members that struggle with that. And they wouldn't even describe it how I describe it when I say they struggle with same-sex attraction because what I would do is I would identify the sin temptation that they have as opposed to making it their identity. It's a difference between saying, I struggle with same-sex attraction, not I am a homosexual. Those are two different things because when you make it your identity, it's hard to fight against your identity. But what if you say that it is something you struggle against, for instance, if someone struggled with gluttony, if they just overeat all the time, you just wouldn't call them a glutton. That's who you are. You'd say you struggle with that temptation for food. If someone cheated on their spouse, I wouldn't just say their identity is an adulterer. Now, when God judges a person, he can call you whatever he wants, but I won't just say that's an identity you have. What I'd say is you had sexual temptation and you didn't resist it, and you ought to, and you ought to practice holiness. So I have a, a family member that uh, they don't struggle with this, but one of their uh, children do. And so when I was a little younger, they would kind of put a lot of pressure on me, knowing that I was in theological training, and, and pressure on me to kind of think a certain way. And um, 
maybe be more open to things that aren't in the Word or quite obviously contrary to the Word. And so here's another reality when we think about what do we do about the changing culture. People we care about are going to do things we can't agree with because those things are objectively wrong. People we care about are going to do things that we can't agree with because those things are objectively wrong. They're sin according to Scripture. That doesn't mean I don't love a person. It means I love them so much that I want them to know that there's going to be a God who judges them one day. I love them so much that I want them to know that they are far more than their sexuality or their appetite or their status as a successful person. They're more than that. They're created in the image of God. And they've been marred by sin just like I have, but they're more than that. There is more to them than that. God has fearfully and wonderfully made them, and and He wants to use them for His purposes and His glory, not just for gratification, not just just to be pleased and, and have flesh as our authority. And so it says, we know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So just like in verse 18 when he tells us about this position being born of God, we see two positions in verse 19. There are two positions, and every single human who is living is in one of these positions. We know that we are of God. Christians are born again. Christians, someone who has the Son, that has eternal life, you're of God. Everyone else is in a different position. Now, it doesn't say you're of Satan. Now, other places in Scripture, it says something similar to that. But as he's talking about identity, he's not saying, all right, we're of God and they're your enemy. That's not what he says. He says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That means in this entire world, everyone fits into two camps. There are Christians who have surrendered to the truth of Jesus Christ And there's everyone else who is deceived by the devil, deceived by their flesh, into thinking that if I just satisfy my flesh, that'll be happiness. If I just get all the things that I want, that'll be joy. If I just pursue all the things that my my earthly flesh desires, that's what'll satisfy me. And what he's saying is, you're under the sway of the evil one. There's going to be some distinctions. When we think about what do we do about a changing culture, there are going to be some distinctions between us and the world. I have a place in your note for you to write five different distinctions. There are at least five different distinctions between us and the world. The first one is our birth. Our birth is distinct from the birth of Adam. You can see it all throughout Scripture. You see it in places like uh, 1 Corinthians Romans, you see this picture that, that there are two births that a person must go through. John wrote about it himself in John chapter 3 in his gospel. That there are two births in this world. That I must be born, obviously to a woman, I, I'm born of the flesh. But that birth alone doesn't inherit eternal life. Because if I am only of Adam, then all I do is inherit the kingdom and the rewards and the inheritance of my father. And the inheritance of Adam is death. But there's another birth. In John chapter 3, when John writes about the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and he says, marvel not that I say you must be born again. 
You have to be born to a woman, but you have to be born of the Spirit. That's what this is describing when it says you're born of God. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you surrender to Him, then the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you are a new creation in Christ, adopted into the family of God. It says we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one because a distinction we have is our birth. Another distinction we have is the Spirit. The Spirit in us is distinct from the spirit of Antichrist. Now there's a lot of descriptions of what the Holy Spirit does in this world, and, and of course the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants, but He has a specific mission, just like Jesus Christ came to the world with a specific mission to die on the cross. The Holy Spirit has a specific mission in this world. He teaches us. He seals us. He convicts us. He comforts us. He does many of those things like that that address the almost inner self of a human. But there's also the spirit of Antichrist in the world that deceives and destroys and gives a false comfort. A false comfort. You see, that's what we have if we think that, well, if I just follow this particular sin and that will lead me to happiness, that will lead me to satisfaction. All we have is a false comfort. We have a temporary comfort that will fade like grass or the flower of grass. It'll go away. It'll go away in the immediate because you find that sin is never satiated. It's never satisfied. You'll always want more. But even if you had all you could ever want, it ends one day because this is a temporary world. But the Holy Spirit teaches, seals, convicts, and provides true comfort. The third way we're distinct from the world is our obedience. This is an important one. They're all important, but this is important for us to get and put into a practical, our practical thought. Our obedience to God is distinct from personal lordship. Our obedience to God is distinct from personal lordship. Here's what I mean by that. There are things that I want to do sometimes that God says are wrong. And if I were my own Lord, I would do them anyway. But I'm not. God is my Lord. And so there are times that God says there are things that I am not supposed to do that I really would like to do. And He's my Lord, so I shouldn't. Now when I mess up, I'm glad we have a book like 1 John and chapter 2. We see, he says, in verses 1 and 2, he says, I write these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I'm glad we have an advocate because I am going to mess up. But Jesus is my Lord. God is my Lord. He is my master, not this flesh, not my desires. That is a, a distinction from the world that, that practices personal lordship. That's what they practice. That's why you'll hear phrases like, that's your truth. There's only one truth. It's God's truth. So we'll say that I'm going to practice personal lordship. They may not think of it that way, but they, they become the gods of their own reality. They say, my flesh is what I desire, and so I'm going to go do those things. I'm going to do what I need to do to be happy, and I'm going to follow what I want. And, and they may not say this out loud, although today they're getting more audacious. They may say, who is God to tell me what I can and can't do? That's a self-descriptive claim there. He's God. He is Lord. So our obedience to God is distinct from personal lordship. The fourth one is our love. Christian love is different than worldly love. 
Christian love is different. Now, worldly love, though, has crept into the church. I, uh, I was watching a pretty, pretty uh, I don't know how to describe it, pretty innocent movie the other day with my kids. And then it, it, there was still like this, this romantic relationship between two characters. And they just did what Hollywood always does is, is they go to world, or I'll call it feelings-based love. And so we're watching this, and I just paused, and I said, no kids, that's foolish. Like, we'll, we'll finish watching this. That's, you know, it's a, a pretty harmless movie. But that, that's foolish. That's not truth. And so then I explained to them the difference between our love being conditional, which is distinct from feelings-based love that the world has. All throughout 1 John, what we've seen in this book is that he calls us to love, and he'll tell us to love even when we don't feel like loving. It's an unconditional love that, that would lead Jesus Christ to the cross, that kind of unconditional love, that while we were his enemies, he gave his life for us. He calls us to that kind of love, that I'm going to care about the person that, that my, might revile and hate me, that, that might persecute me. I have to love that person. That's a distinction of Christianity because the world would say that love is feelings-based. The heart wants what it wants. How can I help it if that's what my heart wants? Or I just fell in love with them. You can love things that are bad for you. You can love things that are unhealthy for you. And if my love is feelings-based, then when my feelings turn against someone, it turns to hatred. It turns to bitterness. It turns to divorce or an end of relationship. If my love is feelings-based, then I'm going to love things that are unhealthy and reject things that God would have me continue loving. But the Christian love is unconditional. And the fifth way that I see that we're distinct in Scripture between us and the world is the truth. The truth is objective and distinct from relativism and it's distinct from what this verse says. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The truth. There is such a thing as truth. Like God made them male and female. There's distinct genders. That I'm called to love people even when they disagree with my belief, including my belief that God made two distinct genders. That's a harder one. But I'm called to that. The truth of the Word, the truth of God, it is an objective thing. That means no matter my perspective, and I may say, well, but you don't understand my situation, and you don't understand how I came to this, or you don't understand what they've done to me, and, you don't, and I try to put my, my perspective, my relative perspective onto God's truth, and it doesn't work because His objective truth is the standard I have to live by. And I have to, and I want to, because it's better. So the second point of your notes is this. We know that Christians are distinct. We're distinct in our birth, the spirit, our obedience, our love, and the truth. So we see in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we see that Christians should practice holiness. And then verse 19, we see that we're from God. And I say we see instead of we know because this is the Oida one, which is to observe. We know or we see that we are of God. And the whole world is under his sway. And so the last question that we'll talk to is in verse 20. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us His understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. What can give me confidence in my own salvation? In a word, Jesus. I'll go ahead and tell you the last point on your notes. It's, we know Jesus has come. When I ask this question or think through it, what can give me confidence in my own salvation? Oftentimes, and I love this, that he closes there in verses 20 and 21. We'll read 21 in a second. But he closes with this pointing us back to the true hope that we have. Pointing us back to Jesus Christ. Because, Christian, if you've wrestled with your salvation, and you say, man, I've, I've professed faith in Christ, I want to live for Him, and I just can't rest. Maybe it's because you're trying to rest in your own strength. God wants you to trust Him. God wants you to trust Him. That's why He wrote in this very same chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Christian, today I hope that you hear that. The salvation is in Christ. And one of the first ways that we can have this assurance in Christ is what John began with. John began with the same assurance that he says in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. We ought not overlook this, that a guy who could be boiled in oil and excommunicated to the island of Patmos, a prison island, he can write this, that he says, I'm telling you, Jesus has come. He ends this book the same way he started. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, he said this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why He also says in chapter 2 to people who don't believe that, who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. We know that the Son has come. And because the Son has come, He has given us an understanding so that we may know the true one. He makes a shift there on that know. So the first three have been the, the one to see and observe. And He shifts here to this relational experiential know, the gnosko, so that we can know the true one. Not just a head knowledge, but know him with my whole being. Because Jesus Christ has come, I can have a relationship with the true one, God. We are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because look at that last phrase. He is the true God and eternal life. What am I going to do about my own salvation and my worries and my doubts? I'm going to rest in Jesus. Because look at verse 21. Here's the warning that we sometimes get to. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Now that may seem like an unusual ending. He's been so poetic all throughout, and then he has this almost staccato statement at the end. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Because he's warning you to stay away from false things. 
the false things of, God, I'm a good enough person. God, I was baptized on this day. God, I do enough work. God, I want to have the best job, the most success. God, I want to spend my days pursuing my passion of maybe it's sexuality or, or, or whatever. Idols. Things that you think will bring you happiness, but they're false. They are false gods. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you about the true one. It is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the book of 1 John. What a powerful book. Able to help any of us see where we stand in you. Why We either have Jesus or we don't. It's that clear. There are other parts that didn't feel as clear. But the most important thing is so clear. And God, we as Christians, you call us to holiness, obedience, love, all these things. You call us to those, but those aren't the things that save us. Help us not get confused. It's not whether or not we're loving enough, whether or not we're obedient enough. It's not those things that save us. But you call us to them. And if anyone is truly saved, then we will pursue those things. Because God, it is your love and your obedience that took your son to the cross. And if it's in him, you want to be in me. To the Christian that thinks I can live a sinful lifestyle and still have a relationship with God, that I can just have this unrepentant sin and not surrender lordship to Christ, That's the person that this book was written for to say, do you have Christ in you? Because you may not. If you just feel like I can live under my own authority, I'm going to obey the flesh and not God. And I'm going to be okay with that. That's the person that may not have Christ. I pray that right now they give their life to Christ. The picture of Scripture is that We're all sinners, and sin earns death, both spiritual and physical. So Jesus died for us, but he didn't stay dead. He died and rose again. So God, if we confess that Jesus is our Lord, meaning our master and our authority, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. I pray that right now a person will do that. As we have a time of prayer in a second, they can come up, talk to a pastor, and say, help me give my life to Christ. For the Christian, though, that sometimes slips into sin, sometimes stumbles into things they ought not, and then they stay buried, buried in shame and doubt and worry, worrying that, God, did I mess up and sin away my salvation? It's not possible because the one who has the Son has life. And Jesus Christ is not only our atonement, He is our advocate before the Father saying, I have paid for that. And so God, I pray for holiness in myself and everyone here who professes the name of Jesus not to earn that salvation, but because of salvation, because our position ought to shape our condition in this world. Our position in you ought to transform our condition in this life. 
I pray that for myself and every believer here. God, as we open the altar, we'll have a time of prayer. People can come pray just thanksgiving to you. They can pray for a struggle in their life or in, in the life of a friend. They can just pray that everyone in this church, themselves included, rest in your great salvation. I pray, God, as we enter this time of prayer, the hearts are lifted up to you. I pray for re repentance to happen and decisions to be made, intercession to happen. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.